Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How To Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, and each episode I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Mo Gaudat is a tech entrepreneur, engineer, businessman, and one of the warmest, most inspiring people I've ever spoken to. He was chief business officer for Google X, the moonshot factory tackling the world's toughest problems in innovative ways, and reached a place early in life where he was extremely successful. To put this in context, he once bought two Rolls Royces online just because, but he was deeply unhappy, buying toys, he says, to fill the hole in his soul. So he set about solving this, applying scientific research skills to how to be happy. After 12 years, he developed an equation for happiness. But this was put to the ultimate test in 2014, when Mo's beloved son, Ali, died unexpectedly. During the grief that followed, Mo channeled his heartbreak in an unlikely way, writing a book on his algorithm for happiness, Solve for Happy, now a bestseller. Mo began a personal moonshot mission, to share his learnings and make one billion people happy. But Mo is keen to point out that being happy doesn't mean never experiencing pain. Because actually, he says, loss is part of life. We shouldn't forget that. A man who knows this more acutely than most and articulates it so powerfully, Mo, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. It is <laughs> my total joy every time we speak. It is just, you're so wonderful, Helen. I'm so grateful for those kind words. I hope I live up to that expectation. If I don't, we're going to have to record this again. You will, you will. I know that you will. Now, most people, of course, will know you for your work in, t- in happiness. But I, as you know, I'm interested in looking at, you know, the sadder side of life and how we handle that. And I think actually we are both coming from the same place. We're talking about how to to do hard things. And so maybe perhaps we could start with loss and the idea of loss as a part of life. I heard it in an interview you were saying as a species, we lose 73 million people a year. So, so tell me yeah. about loss and how we tend to approach it. Well, I, I, loss is every minute of your day. Eh? Every minute of your life is, uh, you, you, we, we, we don't realize that life itself Gain is a result of loss. You know, life is a result of death. It's such an intricate balance that we see around us. But so I think choose to ignore if that makes any sense. The concept that we will always gain is so unlike physics, where, you know, we we, we say energy cannot be created from nothing. And accordingly, matter cannot be created from nothing. And and nothing can be created from nothing. We're just transforming all the time. I I watched one of my favorite documentaries on on Netflix is uh, called Connected by Latif Nasser. uh, I've interviewed him actually on Slow Mo. And Latif, basically, in one of his uh, episodes, he calls it dust. It shows you how life itself comes from the death that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago. So the way we experience loss, surprisingly, is not the way we should experience loss. We we sort of somehow focus in and zoom in and say, I've lost something. 
when you're actually losing something every minute as you're gaining other things, if you want. At the same time, we, we focus in on loss as if we lost something because we ever had anything. When in reality, when you, you know, when I when I wrote about death in, in Soul for Happy to try and reconcile the loss of my child, I, I, I realized some very important things that he was never really my anything. He was always his. It's his life. It's his journey. I was just a, a supporting actor in his life, if you want. He was, a, 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 you know, a, a wonderful actor in mine. But but it's his path. And and how can I lose what was never really mine, if you want. Uh, you know, when, when you look at loss uh, from the point of view that we come to life with nothing, you know, you're born literally with nothing, and then you leave life with nothing, that sort of tells you in an interesting way that you never really owned anything. You just rented life on the path. And, and you know, how can you lose what you didn't own? And I think all of these are, are very tough existential questions, if you ask me for someone to really look at the reality of life and say, you know what, I, I have one thing in life, and that's the only thing I have, which is this minute I'm spending with you now, Helen. And that's the only thing hmm, I will ever own. I'll, you know, that minute will be gone in a minute, and then there will be another minute. And that's that's all we really get. That's all we really own. And that's sadly all we really lose. I love the... Um... The Japanese idea of the wabi-sabi, I was reminded when you were speaking about dust, this idea of the transience of life and the imperfection. I think we struggle to remember that a lot of the time. It's quite a, a hard one to think about and talk about. And I wonder, from, from reading your book and, and from thinking about your work, would you differentiate between sadness and unhappiness, do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, differentiate between uh, you know what I call suffering, repeated unhappiness, the act of feeling unhappy over a long, an extended period of time and pain triggering negative emotions, right? So, so sadness is one word we use for it, but what, what our human emotions, uh, you know, the ones that really feel negative are, are a, a massive range. As a matter of fact, there are more words in the English language that describe negative emotions than positive emotions, you know, feeling uh, grief, feeling shame, feeling regret, feeling anxiety, uh, you know, worry, all of these are you know uh, emotions that we equate with with sadness, if you want, and sadness, if you want to look at it this way, is it is triggered from things from from outside you. So you hear something in the news: uh, the prime minister did something shameful. You know, I don't know, and and Probably. somehow that I mean, it's you know, if 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 you're listening to British media, it's always the case. But uh, you know. Not because the prime minister is bad, but because the media starts to look for something that, uh, you know. You're very diplomatic. Uh, that catches your attention. Uh, I mean, the, the, the idea here is you, you take that event and it might trigger something in you. Or, you know, your, your partner says something hurtful on Friday and that might trigger something in you. And that is coming from outside you. And you can take that and you can say, okay, it's triggering something in me because my brain is alerting me, almost like a fire alarm, to the need for action, okay, to the need maybe for reflection, to the need for a change, right? It's just telling me something is not perfectly as optimal as I want it to be. And that comes from outside you, just like pain, like, like cutting your finger. When you take that pain and you, you do something about it, it goes away. It goes away because, first of all, you improves your life. And, and second, it's because just being engaged in that action takes your mind away from thinking about 
all of the things that you can't control. Huh? It's, you know, you, you cut your finger, you protect it, you keep it away from, you know, from harm. And, and by doing that action, it gets better and the pain goes away. When it comes to unhappiness, however, we seem to have an incredibly well-designed engine in our head that's a bit like Netflix. It's unhappiness on demand. It's like, remember what your partner said on Friday? Oh my God, that was so hurtful. Let me play that again. Like a horror movie. It's like, you know, you play it over and over and over. And every time you add to it, you add drama, you add incredible creativity by our brain. You know, he said something hurtful because he's cheating on me. It's because I'm fat. You, you can do anything that you want with it. Huh? And in reality, none of it, none of that actually impacts on the, on, on the real world in any way. Okay, it's quite surprising because we spend so much of our time absorbed in that weird internal dialogue when actually what we should do is do something about it. Like turn to my partner and say, why did you say that? That hurt me, right? And, and that's it. And, and life goes on. And, you know, you may end up making up or you may end up leaving each other. But either way, the problem is over. And, and somehow we keep that happening. And that's repeated unhappiness. It's, it's that constant, unwarranted, needless suffering that we go through that is a choice. I'm so interested to hear you, to you say that about suffering. I, I love what you write about that every, every temporarily uncomfortable sensation has a purpose, like the usefulness of fear and it's okay to be afraid. And if we're lonely, we should reach out more. But suffering, you don't have any, any stock with. You, you don't it think there's no, any purpose. It has no, it is a total waste of your life. It's a total waste of your life. And, and remember, huh? this is the businessman, the engineer talking. It's, it's almost like saying, look, we're going to take half of your apartment and build a couple of walls in it so that you never access that place. But that's the only use for it, really. It's not carrying any load. It's not doing anything. It's not making your life better. But let's just do it anyway. You know, it's, it's like going to the dentist and then the dentist tells you, hey, you know, it's going to hurt a little today, but tomorrow you're going to wake up better. Or, or would you like me to make it hurt again tomorrow? And, you know, who would go to the dentist and say, yeah, 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 make it hurt all week? You know, how stupid is that? You know, why do and we I, do that to ourselves? Yeah, I get the logic of that. And I get, you know, you're saying the, the, the business and the engineer's brain on that. But I, I read, you know, the Desmond Tutu quote, that I'm sorry to say suffering is not optional. Mm. There seem to be so many other great thinkers who are saying, yeah, suffering's part of the deal. What do you feel no, about pa- that? Pain, pain is part of the deal. Yeah. Pain is part of the deal. Maybe, maybe it's a wording and a definition difference. Mm-hmm. Huh? Hardship in life, pain, harshness are part of the deal. Losing my child is part of the deal. Finding difficult people on your path, part of the deal. Going through a bit of poverty, a bit of need, a bit of hunger, a bit of uh, sickness, that's part of the deal. That's, that's life. That's the video game, if you want. But suffering is optional. To, to choose to indulge in that kind of thinking that is Netflix of unhappiness, that's you know, unhappiness on demand. Because remember, what your partner said on Friday is over. It's done. Friday is gone. That event never will happen again unless you create it in your brain. And you choose to create it in your brain. That's optional because you know what? While you're creating it in your brain, if your boss comes to you and says, where's that report I asked for yesterday? You're going to tell your brain, no, 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 hold on brain. We're going to think about that in a couple of hours. Let's just finish the report, right? And we have the capability in our system to tell our brains what to think about to tell our brains how to handle what we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. We have the capability within us 
to actually embrace an emotion fully. I encourage people to feel and embrace the emotion fully, but then choose how to react to it, right? You, 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 may, you may feel angry. It's absolutely, I, I interviewed Arun Gandhi uh, one day on Snowman, and he has this book that's called The Gift of Anger. And I'm like, Arun, how, how, can, how can anger be a gift? And he says, well, anger is an energy. You can choose what to do with it. Right now, you make those choices, but when it comes to sadness, you go like, nah, I'm just gonna, you know, surrender to this. I'm, I'm just let, gonna let it consume me from the inside out. I'm not gonna do anything about it. Your choice, but you have to do something about it if you want it to go out of your life. That's interesting. I don't know how I feel about that, but I was very interested in the way you have spoken about your son's death and saying you would have been completely within your rights, and many people do to just to sit with that sadness and let it consume you in the way that you're talking about. Can you tell us a little more about, about your son dying and how you reacted to that at that time? So look, I, I mean, not at that time, until today, every second morning I'll wake up and my brain will tell me Ali died. And I don't, I hope nobody ever loses a child. It's, it's just a very, uh, I, I always say it, it feels physical. I don't know if you understand that. That Helen, you know, you, I, I literally feel the bottom right hand side of my my heart absent. Okay, I feel like oh a, a real wound. It, yes. it is true. It's it's. I mean, I can pinpoint it. I can point at it and tell you that's the part that hurts because of Ali, right? And it's never gonna go away. Every morning I will wake up and I will feel that. Every time he will cross my mind, I will miss him. And there's nothing. Nothing you can do to change that. As you said, it's part of the deal. That part is not optional. And that part, as a matter of fact, believe it or not, I embrace fully. I even enjoy missing Ali. I enjoy bringing him into my memory. It's not in a sadistic way, but it's my... Remember, every emotion is wonderful. Every emotion is real. You know, you know how you go to a Chinese restaurant and they, they, they offer you sweet and sour. Hmm? Sweet and sour is not wonderful because of the sweet only. It's the sweet and sour. That's when we feel alive. Imagine a day when you didn't feel a single emotion. It's not a day you will register at all. You will not have lived. Emotions are what makes us alive. Hmm. Losing Ali, Habibi, Ali, hmm. Ali left us in a very unexpected way at the height of the pride of me as a father, who's 21 and a half. Uh, he was tall, handsome like hell, broad shoulders, loving like love itself, wise like Yoda, okay? To, to the point that this big, at, at the time I was chief business officer of Google X, this big guy that is larger than life in, in the eyes of so many people, wanted nothing but to be in the hug of that little creature, okay? You just, you got into Ali's hug, and you felt that this was it. This was somehow the divine, if you want. This was safe. And then he goes into an operating room and, you know, the surgeon does five mistakes in a row. And yeah, I wish he didn't, but there's nothing I can do to prevent that from happening. And it happened and Ali left. Five mistakes, all of them preventable, all of them correctable. You can somehow say it was Ali's time to leave us. And you, you get that and it hurts. It hurts. It's confusing. It's totally, totally against the nature of someone whose job in life is to control events, is to try and make sure the trains arrive on time, the business is done properly. And there is something about loss and death that is 
just final, so final that it's like, I can't negotiate that deal. I can't, I can't say, okay, give him to me one more month and I'll give you coffee for the rest of my life. Can we, can we not negotiate that? And you get into that point and you have, you know, most people think that you have one of only one choice. And that choice is, okay, you know what? Good move life. Thank you for the pain. I'm just going to stick with it for the rest of my life. I'm going to just sit here and cry. And that's the end of my life because yeah, that was checkmate. And many people choose that choice, but that's not actually the truth. The truth is you have two choices. Okay. Neither of them, by the way, bring Ali back. Neither of them will, will reverse the finality of death. So Ali's gone. The other choice that you have is so, okay. Now, the last time I hugged him before he went into the operating room was the high point of my life. Until today, it's the high point of my life. From there, I lose Ali and my life drops like a mile and a half from that high point to a much, much worse point. You can continue on a free fall. You can hit that point and, and stop and say, okay, I'm going to stay there for the rest of my life. Or you can say, it's my new baseline. It's my new baseline that I is no longer here. What am I going to do about it? I call that committed acceptance. Committed acceptance is sometimes, very often, by the way, in everyone's life, life will deal you a hand with finality. It will have COVID-19 spread in the world and say, you're going to stay at home and there's nothing you can do about it, okay? You can object, you can complain, you can uh, shout, scream, whatever you want, you're staying at home. This is how it's going to be. When those things happen, I'd say, embrace the emotion, love it. Say, okay, I feel it, it's true. But also accept the new baseline, accept the fact that your life has changed. And then that's, that's acceptance. Huh? Commitment is the interesting one. And then try to ask yourself, what can I do now to make my life a tiny bit better than this dark place? Okay. Can I, can I just do something tomorrow that makes tomorrow a little better than today? And then after tomorrow, I'll do another thing that will make after tomorrow better than tomorrow. And just start to move from there. That's, that's the commitment that makes your life and the lives of those around you, the ones that you love better. And I, in my view, that doesn't mean I'm not sad. It, it, me, it doesn't mean I don't feel the pain. It just means that I take the pain, I accept it, and I turn it into an energy that's positive for me and positive for, for those around me. And it doesn't bring Ali back. Remember, Ali's still not here, but it makes it feel that it wasn't for nothing that he left. I love the story about donating to water charities after his death. Perhaps you could share that with us now. Yeah, actually, that, that story even evolves much, much more in my heart. I'll tell you how after he left. But, but Ali, Ali uh, you know, when he went into the operating room, he, uh, so he, he had an appendix inflammation, which basically meant he couldn't keep anything in his stomach. He, you know, it was the, fast, the month of Ramadan. And, and Muslims, we fast uh, the month of Ramadan. Uh, he was fasting and then he started to feel that pain. So he hadn't, uh, you know, and then, and then he went into the, in, into the checkup and they said, you need to fast until the operation. And so basically Ali was fasting at least 24 hours. He hadn't had a sip of water in a way when, when he left, I, I felt that his fast was sort of a symbolic message to say that our world, you know, th th don't let anyone feel that way. If you want, as if, you know, grieving father who loves his child, who also really cares about the, you know, the problem of clean water in so many parts of the world, I decided to just give in charity 
to to sort of honor his feeling of being thirsty for 24 hours before he left. And, and then it crossed my mind when I was writing the chapter about death that, that if I had asked Ali, knowing how he was, if I had asked him, uh, Ali, would you actually give your life for so many people to actually get, get fresh water as a result of your departure? I promise you, he would have said, of course, Papa. You know, what's one life in comparison to thousands of lives that are actually dying every day from loss of water? And I think that that, that story evolved really heavily. I remember in 2019, I was speaking at, a, at an event called uh, Wisdom in Business in, in the Netherlands. And, and I it just hit me because, you know, sometimes you speak from the heart and it touches people's hearts. And I was sitting on stage and I realized the amount of change that happened in the world, uh, you know, with, what, with my mission, One Billion Happy, reaching tens of millions of people so far, and the amount of positive change that has happened as a result of Ali's departure. And it hit me so hard. But if I had asked Ali at any point in time, would you give your life for so many people to feel happy? He would actually have said, yes, I would give my life for that. And when you really start to think about it, you know, committed acceptance is that, that the fact that I accepted his departure and started to turn it into something positive. When you look back at it, honestly, by choice, I would give my life. I know he would have given his life. To make a billion people happy, I don't know if we'll ever reach a billion, but we're in tens of millions. And if, by the way, making one life happy in, in my culture, in my background, making one life happy is like making the whole world happy. Making we, we say giving life to a single human being is like giving life to all of humanity. Okay, And I would say an unhappy life is not a life. So, so giving happiness to one human being is like giving life to all of humanity. Now we've reached tens of millions because of Ali's departure. And, in, you know, do I wish to have him in my arms right now? Of course I do. But it wasn't for nothing that he left. I think that is what committed acceptance is all about. It wasn't for nothing that he left. I love that. I love the idea of committed acceptance. And you talk about different cultural approaches. You've lived and worked all over the world. Do you think other cultures are a bit are a little better at this kind of acceptance of, of good and bad and more in touch with their emotions and certainly like Northern Europe or North America. There definitely is a, a, a massive difference in our um, understanding of control, if you want, mm. across, across uh, you know, the West and the East. There's also a, a, a very ma- a major difference in understanding of success between the West and the East. So, so in, the, in the West, success is very individual. It is, uh, it is, I am in charge. I am in control. I will rush to make myself better than my neighbor. And that's a very alien concept uh, in the East. In the East, and by the way, East includes advanced nations like Korea or like Japan and so on. You know, in the East, it's more about we will thrive as a society and the success of our community is more important than the success of me as an individual. And so accordingly, those norms, they manifest in very, very different ways because it's very hard in the West to accept things like failure, to accept things like loss, to accept things that are directly influencing your individual position in life, if you want. While in the East, it's actually quite okay to sacrifice for all of us to go further. It's quite okay to accept 
you know, if you've watched um, Karate Kid, for example, it's quite okay to accept as an individual that your master will teach you something in a harsh way. It's quite okay to accept that life is going to be harsh because so many people around you are actually suffering most of the time. And suddenly you start to realize that, yeah, that's actually part of the deal, as, as we were just saying. It's, it's, it's not ever going to be perfect. You're bound to sort of always find compromises that you have to accept in life. And I think that feeling is much more true in the East, including Latin America, by the way, than it is mm. in the West. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? The way it's spread across the globe. I like um, the part in your book when you talk about the three Islamic lessons for, uh, about death and how they can teach us how to live. Death is, is seen very differently across the world. And, and, I, and I say that openly. I hope people don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm completely indifferent, completely indifferent if I live another day or I go right now. That's a very strong thing to say. Tell me, tell me why. Well, you see, I'm a gamer. I, I am a video gamer. I understand so strongly that this physical form that we're in is just one more level in the game. And I, I don't say that from spiritual. I'm, I'm quite spiritual. I, I'm also considerably religious, even though my view of religion is I pick the parts of every religion that is gold. I don't have to align to every one of them, including the mistakes, you know, the interpretations by humans and so on. When I look at life and death, there are tons of spiritual scriptures and teachings that will tell you that life and death is not what we think they are. I believe that in my heart, but I don't choose that. You know, in, in Soul for Happy, you know, when I spoke about death, I basically attempted to describe death from a point of view of quantum physics, and death from a, quantum, a point of view of theory of relativity, and an understanding of simple concepts like subject-object relationship, like vantage points, and so on. So, so let me try to explain this. Huh? If you really, really think about my wonderful son Ali, after he left our planet, if you want, there was some body left behind. That body looked like Ali, but it had none of the essence. And I know Ali's essence. I know my son. Huh? Something left him. Something that maybe is not perceivable by our eyes and our senses was what animated that inanimate object, if you want. You know, when, when we laid Ali to his grave... It may have taken a few months until he vanished completely. That, that you know, or I don't know how long it takes, but, but that physical form was never him. It was a vehicle that his essence was using to navigate this physical world. Now, from a, a theory of relativity point of view, you know, just to simplify things, you have to understand that time doesn't really exist in the way we perceive it. All of time exists in one four-dimensional structure that we call space-time, that where all of space and all of time is a slice at any point in time. Right? So, so now is one slice in that structure. It's like a, you know, a loaf. I'm thinking of like a loaf of bread, toast, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. A, lo a loaf of bread, you yeah. know, every slice of it is one instant of time and all of space, okay? As you start to see it that way, you have to question a couple of things. Huh? One is that idea of object-subject relationship, which basically is all about you know, if I, if I tell you to observe the building that you're sitting in right now, the only way to observe it is to sit outside it, okay? You can't actually observe it from sitting inside it. The only way we could see planet Earth was to send an astronaut outside to take a picture of it, right? If you're on Earth, you can't perceive it. You can't perceive what you're part of. Now, if you take that simple concept, then you're not supposed to 
perceive the arrow of time, the passage of time, if you're part of it. And so accordingly, the part of us that perceives the passage of time is actually not part of the physical universe. It's outside the physical universe where all of the laws of time exist. It sits outside. In that place where time doesn't exist, there is no before or after. Ali was not born before me. Ali's body was born before me. Ali didn't, you know, after me. Ali's body died, left his physical form before me. But my essence, my real observer, if you want, doesn't experience that. My real observer and Ali's real observer are all not subject to time. You know, to summarize it, I I think this is too complex for a podcast, but to summarize the whole concept uh, of how we live and die, life is not the opposite of death. Death is the opposite of birth. You Mm -hmm. come to this physical form that we are through a portal that we call birth. You leave it through a portal that we call death. But life exists before, during, and after. Life is independent of that. Life is timeless. In an interesting way, Ali's physical form decayed, but Ali's beautiful essence remained before the physical form came during the time he spent with us. And after, which to me is after, to him there is no after, to to your physical form there is before and after, to your essence there isn't. And when you really start to think about death across the the globe, death is celebrated in Mexico in the day of death every year. Death is celebrated in Sufism, where people actually hold parties. They call it almost the wedding parties, where you basically, you know, it's, it's like I'm leaving this restrictive form and now I'm finally free in shamanic traditions life, uh, you know, you and your spirit animals and, you know, the union of you, the divine and all of that is all across the world. In the West, on the other hand, we fear death. We fear it because of the scientific method, because we align so much with what we do not measure does not exist. Allow me to ask you this. Can you measure love? Love exists, Mm -hmm. right? And there are so many things you can't measure, but you're okay with you live with, you accept. And when you start to look at death this way, I'll tell you my, 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 my truth. My truth is I have no guarantee whatsoever that I will live a minute after we finish this podcast. I have no guarantee. I might walk very outside to buy a, I, I, And, I, I, and I'm, I'm saying I'm indifferent for a very simple reason. Because this whole episode that we're in is a wonderful experience right now. Mm-hmm. Do you understand that? Yes. I have no guarantee that tomorrow will be wonderful. I know that now is wonderful. I know that tomorrow will be what it is if I intend for it to be what it is. And whether that's here or there, who cares? It's my, my life exists endlessly. It's a fascinating way of looking at things. I think I totally agree that we, that we have this obsession with planning in the equation in Solve for Happy, which I might ask you to just summarize quickly, you'll do it more, more justice, but our, how does our ability to predict sadness and predict happiness, predicting came up a lot in my research on sadness. How do we um, ally this idea of expectations and predicting with the other idea that we have no control over our life? You know, we can control our actions, but life can throw things at us. How do you marry up the two? 
So, yeah, so my, my question is very straightforward. Happiness is not a result of what life gives you. It's a result of the comparison that happens in your brain between what life gives you and what you want life to be. Taking the, that, uh, that horrendously um, shocking approach of I'm indifferent about life and, that, life and death, right? I, I expect that life and death are indifferent. That's my expectation, uh, you know? So accordingly, life and death, whatever the event to me, I'm happy either way. I, I expect nature to be crooked and that bushes will grow on, uh, you know, on, on things and that a, a tree might be a little bent and I'm happy with that. So I'm always happy in nature, right? It's very straightforward when your events are compared to an expectation and they meet that you feel happy. In the UK, when it rains, it's almost as if you guys, you don't see it. When it rains on me, I'm completely panicking, right? Why? Because that event for someone who lived in places where it rains four times a year most of my life, when it rains, it's, a, it's something. It just shocks my expectations. Now, Didn't you recently flee Canada for the winter because it was too cold? I did. <laughs> I, did. I, 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 attempted, I attempted to stay until, uh, until uh, October and then it started to go below 10 degrees and I was like, that's it. You know, yeah. not for me. And uh, I, I, know, I know that you're now hiding inside in Denmark because it must be... True getting really cold uh events minus expectations can be summarized in a very simple equation uh, your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the, your perception of the events of your life and your expectations of how life should be and every minute of your life you actually compare that right so i just gave you a very complex view of my understanding of death and in, inside my head uh, you know my head is saying oh that's too complex. That's not the right thing for a podcast. My expectation is that it should be more easy and understandable in a podcast. Maybe I did that wrong. You know, you get a little bit of worry in your head. Yeah, this is how life works. Huh? You compare an event to an expectation. If, if life meets your expectations, you're happy or, or beats your expectations, you're happy. If life misses your expectations, you're unhappy. Now, when you think about it this way, unhappiness becomes a very interesting concept because it, it suddenly becomes a survival mechanism. It's a fire alarm. A fire alarm basically that says, I'm going to detect the environment. If I, if I sense a fire, a, th a threat of some sort, I will alert you. I won't alert you in the, in the form of words because you, you know, your brain is talking inside your head all the time. You never really listen anyway. So it alerts you in the form of an emotion. It tells you, hey, by the way, feel worried. When you feel worried, it's supposed to stop you in your tracks, pause the Netflix video that you're watching and say, oh, I'm worried. I need to think about this and see what I'm going to do about it. Going back to the idea of pain and suffering, that's unavoidable. That's necessary. As a matter of fact, that's actually quite valuable. So, so you know, when you talk about how to be sad, that's, in, in, to me, the number one step about how to be sad is to recognize it. It's like, oh my God, I'm feeling this. Something needs my attention. That's number one. Number two, of course, is you start to say, okay, survival mechanism. How do I react to fire alarms? Do I sit there and just let them play in my ears over and over and over? Or do I actually take action? If I leave the building, two things will happen. One is I'm safer. Two is I no longer have to suffer the noise, right? And so accordingly, sadness is all about that. Unhappiness in general, it's about, okay, can I do something about this? Can I change it to the better? Can I accept it with committed acceptance? Can I, can I, can I? With that happiness equation in mind, you start to face quite a few things about life that miss expectations. They don't miss expectations because life is horrible, because in all honesty, our life is good. You and I are sitting 6,000 miles apart. 
having this wonderful, you know, uh, connection that we had many times when you were on my podcast, you know, this time and so on and so forth, using a technology that wasn't in existence 10 years ago, right? There's so much good about our life. Yet, 60 to 70%, 6 to 7 out of every 10 thoughts in an adult brain are negative. 6 to 7 out of every 10 thoughts are telling you life is wrong. You have to start wondering, is, is that even realistic? It's like, would I be alive if six and 60 to 70% of my life is wrong? And the truth is, it's not. Your life is actually most of us. At this moment, right now, if you're listening to this podcast, that means you have a device to listen to it on. You have the time, you have the space, you have the safety, the security. You're not hungry, you're not sick. You have the time to listen to a podcast. I mean, seriously, that's better than so many people in the world. And accordingly, you know, you start to say, oh, the baseline of my life is not actually that. The baseline of all of our lives is not a pandemic. This is why the pandemic is so shocking to us because I'm 53 now. I've never seen a pandemic in my life. This is new. That odd anomaly from the baseline of a good life. With that in mind, you start to say, so how do I reconcile life being unpredictable and my, my state of happiness as per the happiness equation? And that's a big question. The real answer to it is, are you actually seeing the events for what they are? All of them uncensored, unfiltered by your brain. And are you setting your expectations realistically? And most of the time we're unhappy because we compare perceptions of events that are blurry because of what I call the seven blind spots in our brain to expectations that are unrealistically set because of what I call the six grand illusions. And when you compare, you know, if I tell you A equals B plus C or B minus C, and you factor in the wrong B and the wrong C, you're going to get the wrong A. It's not because the world is broken. It's because you're, you're solving the equation wrong. Mm. You're seeing the events in a blurry, untrue format, and you're comparing it to unrealistic expectations. Most of the time, you're going to end up feeling unhappy. As someone who has worked with technology for so many years, what's your relationship with technology like now? How does that play into your <clears throat> excuse me, happiness or unhappiness? So I've just finished one of my proudest works, I think, uh, a book called Scary Smart. Mm. Uh, about AI. And, and my, my relationship with technology, if you've seen the social dilemma, is quite interesting because I believed in for so many years that what I did was really changing the world for the better. And it was. I mean, remember, before, before I was the, the chief business officer of Google X, I was the vice president of Google in emerging markets. I opened half of Google's offices, more than half of Google's offices and worldwide, more than 110 languages. So I got the internet, if you want, to more than 4 billion people, you know, and, and to get the internet to Bangladesh changes the entire country, democracy of information, democracy of commerce, and so on. And it was amazing. It was such a high to actually make that difference to the world. But then, of course, as you saw in the social dilemma, it starts to work against you somehow. It starts to work against the world somehow. You know, when we invented the iPhone, it was an incredible addition to, to the world. iPhone 12 is actually taking away from the world somehow. It's like just consuming and wasting and, it's, you know, it's not adding anything. Technology, however, is not to be blamed at all, including, as a matter of fact, it's remarkable because when I started to write Scary Smart, it was sort of a prophecy, something I call the three inevitables, that AI is taking over. It's done. They will be smarter than we are. It's inevitable. There is no way you can actually prevent that. And there will be some mistakes. There will be issues. Okay. And those three inevitables in my starting of the book was holy crap, how can we fix that? It's, a, it's almost like a, a doomsday scenario. And then I realized, at, you know, halfway through that actually there is nothing 
absolutely nothing wrong with technology. There's a lot wrong with us. And, and I think that's a, an incredible, incredible realization. There's nothing wrong with social media. It's what we post on it and what we click on that is wrong. I ran an experiment. Actually, we spoke about it. I mentioned it when, we, when you were on my podcast. And then I actually ran an experiment. So I, my, my daughter loves cats. I search for, for, for cats on Instagram and I send them to Aya. One day I realized that my entire first search page on Instagram, when you click on search, they give you some recommendations. All of them were cats. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I started to scroll down. There was one woman exercising in the middle of all of the cats. So I clicked on that. The next morning, I search for cats for Aya and there are three women, not on the second page, but on the first page, this one, this time. So I clicked on all three. Two days later, there was nothing on my Instagram page but butts of women squatting. Really interesting because there's nothing wrong with Instagram. They don't prefer cats to butts and, and butts to cats. By, by the way, I'm now back, back to, to cats now. My entire Instagram page is, is cats. Hmm? But, but what is interesting is that my behavior dictated what that tool did. You know, we talk about toxic positivity, hmm? It's Facebook doesn't produce any content. It's us humans. We are producing what's on Facebook. And so interestingly, I'll tell you openly, technology is a double-edged sword. It's an exaggeration tool of how we are. I can walk at five kilometers an hour, or I can get in a car and go 240 kilometers an hour. The car has nothing to do other than reflect the speed I want to go at. It also reflects the direction and the recklessness of how I want, how I want to drive it. And so I'll, I'll openly say technology is making us very unhappy today, not because of the inherent part of it, which of course is also true that the algorithms are trying to bias us to stick around more and so on and so forth. But we're humans with will make a choice. And we spoke about it again when you were a guest on slow-mo, the idea of you, how you restrict the hours where your children are around not to be seen with a screen in your hand. That's a choice that you have. You can, you can get the best of technology by allowing you to write, to share with your uh, followers, to produce wonderful content like you do on, on social media all the time. But at the same time, you can also make sure that when your kids are around, you're holding a book, you're showing them the right habits and so on and so forth. It's how we use it that changes everything. And I think now that artificial intelligence is in play, which means that the magnification of who we are is going to go through the roof in terms of speed, I think it's about time that we actually start to say, how am I behaving in front of technology, in front of others versus others or vis-a-vis -vis others, so that when technology or when artificial intelligence observes us humanity, it realizes, hey, by the way, we want to be happy and we want to make others happy instead of we want to be vain and uh, you know, self-centered and we want to make others miserable and we want to bully everyone. It's our choice. It's interesting. And so, so do you restrict your own use now? What does a typical day look like for Mo now? I'm guessing it includes a lot of coffee. I see you write and talk about coffee a lot. I, I love coffee. I love, I love the idea. So I don't have a lot of coffee anymore. I used to have 11 cups a day. And then, oh, my word. No wonder you've been so productive in your career. 
<laughs> yeah. At that time, actually, I used to sleep four hour days and I was wondering, I mean, it's like, is that genetic? Like, you know, I, I feel super energetic with four hours a day. It is, uh, it's, uh, it's how now, now I drink like maybe two, one is decaf, but I love the idea of the art of it, not the drink. Mm. You know, it's, it's the idea of, can I spend a bit of time? Remember in uh, leap year when you spoke about uh, doing something for the sake of it? Yeah, I, I, I love the idea of making an incredibly fit cup of coffee for my current mood, okay? And, and it's, it's almost a meditative exercise. It's like, I have to first reflect and understand, how do I feel today? And then I have to sit in front of the machine and say, how do I translate that into a coffee? And then I taste it and it's not exactly what I want. So I throw it away and make another one. And that's wow. 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah that, it's, and it's not about the drink at all. The drink eventually gets drunk in like an, uh, f- four minutes and then I have to wash the cup and it's an annoying process. But, but it's that whole idea of giving yourself something to do for the sake of it. I love, I love, love that. I love the idea of, of connecting with you in, in ways that are deeper through coffee, through art, like, you know, your painting, or I found it hilarious when you spoke about dancing and, and so on, right? So, so those things are incredible. Huh? Other habits in my life, really from a technology point of view, are quite engineering-like. So I, I actually produced a, a video on Instagram, the 10 things that I do to stay, you know, to stay, to, to stay within my limit of one and a half hours a day on, on the phone. But they include things like measuring it. They include the, the part of the technology that is really hurtful and, and dangerous is the mindless swiping mm. and typing, as I call it. Okay. If you're mindful while you're using tech, it's always for your good. Okay. It's that moment when you've responded to the messages that you got, you've posted what you wanted to post. When you start to swipe aimlessly at whatever that tool is sending at you, that is when your life is wasted. And my, my number one ask of everyone is measure. There are so many tools now that will shock you. You'll find that you're probably on that little thing for four hours a day, even more for some of us. The trick is the following. The trick is if I told you that you're putting four hours of your life every day in something that is so wasteful, you may say, yeah, but you know, you, we watch TV and so on. But if I tell you that one of the reasons why in my life I've been so productive was that I always used those four hours to do something useful. This is half a working day, four mm-hmm. hours a day. Is half a working day. And so if you decide, as, as Malcolm Gladwell uh, spoke about the 10,000 hours and outliers, if you want to be one of the best people in the world at something, put four hours a day, I think, for seven years, and you'll be Eric Clapton if you, if you put that behind playing the guitar, or you know, you, you'll be Picasso if you, if you put that behind painting. And you start to ask yourself, wow, wow, and I'm putting that behind what? Mm-hmm. Swiping and typing. Mm-hmm. We're all becoming Picassos of swiping and typing. And what a waste of life that is. Yeah. When you really, really think about it, I think it's time to take charge. But I've also read you are working 14-hour days and you are, you're fitting time for exercise and meditation. How do, does every day look similar? Do you, does every day, if you're having a really no. bad day, what does Mo do to make it less <laughs> bad anymore? But I, what is a bad day? So does every day look similar? Actually, no, it's quite a complex matrix of how okay. days look like. You know, there are days that are dedicated for my startup, days that are dedicated for, uh, you know, my um, recording slow-mo, the days that, and so on. So, you know, and and the different hours of the day and so on. But they're actually quite predictable because I almost know how many hours of my life are going to be spent 
uh, on every single thing that matters every week. And I put those things in my calendar first, including time with my wonderful daughter, for example. How many people will have that in their calendar? I will, absolutely. Okay. If she says, hey, let's talk tomorrow between six and eight, I'll block six to eight. And you know, if, if God uh, texts and says, hey, are you free at seven? I'll say, can we make it 8.30? And, and the truth is, uh, those are the habits that really start to make your life effective because it's not what you do. If, you, if you've ever traded the stock market, it's not the good trades that actually make you successful. It's avoiding the bad trades that really allows you to consistently over time become amazing. Okay. So it's avoiding the bad habits. It's avoiding the bad waste of your life because mm-hmm. life can be the only resource we have, Helen. The only thing we've been given is ours. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the only single resource that life has given you is ours. In those hours you can love, you can hate. In those hours you can produce, you can waste. Okay. In those hours you can think about something useful or watch a reality TV show. In those hours you can be optimistic or you can watch news. It's your choice. You can watch a horror movie. You can watch a love story. Mm-hmm. It's your choice. Okay. And every single time you will do one of those, you'll get into neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity will make you really, really good at it. Again, Malcolm Gladwell outliers. You become really good at being cynical if you're spending several hours a day being cynical. Mm-hmm. Be- you become really, really good at being absent if you become if you spend four hours a day not feeling mindful. You're training your brain constantly. So how, how do you do it? I, I sit down, actually, this time of the year is really important for me because, you know, last two weeks of December, normally, I sit down quite often uh, in what I call meet Becky kind of meetings, meet my brain. So You're going to have to explain Becky for anyone who hasn't read the book or doesn't know Becky. So right, yes, so I, so I, I will, Be- Be- Becky is my brain. Becky is a third party. I treat my brain as a third party because my brain actually is a third party. It's a device, a biological piece of meat, if you want, that has the incredible capability of analyzing the world around it and turning turning it into concepts that are presented to me in the form of thoughts, okay? Don't ask me who me is because we would need another podcast for that, but to my consciousness. I I have two more questions. We can't possibly. (laughs) Uh So so my consciousness is is taking those thoughts and, and dealing with them. Now, if you think that those thoughts are you, telling you what to do, you would obey every time. By treating my brain as a third party and saying, thank you for presenting that concept, but my daughter doesn't hate me, okay? I actually object to that thought brain. Can you, can you give me some proof? Can you tell me what evidence you have for that? Can you give me action that we can do about it? By treating Becky as a third party, I can be a lot more objective with my thoughts, right? So I, I actually have regular meetings that I call Meet Becky, which are meetings where I sit and instead of meditating, trying to observe my breathing or my itches or whatever that is to, to quiet my brain and to, my, to, to do my training, I actually sit and allow my brain to tell me whatever it wants to tell me. And I take notes sometimes. I was going to ask, as a fellow kind of book lover and learning lover, whether you fell into the trap that I regularly fall into. It was only pointed out to me recently by my therapist that I kind of hide in busyness and overwork and books because actually life can seem more complicated and human relationships and interactions seem more complicated. But it sounds like perhaps your time with Becky makes you more aware of this. I, I definitely am a hider. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I, I, on, again, on Instagram, I've published a few videos around something I call half monk, 
which is my attempt. attempt yes. Yeah, I, yeah, my attempt to have 50% of my life in monk-like activities, in isolation, in silence, in meditation, in retreat, and so on and so forth. People are wonderful. Every single human being you meet, it teaches you something. They're a mirror, they're wonderful, they're, they're life itself. Huh? But too much of anything is bad. And, and so at the end of the day, you really have to balance out. I don't hide in my work, but I honestly prioritize my work. I mean, in all honesty, I can, I can spend an hour with someone and we talk about something important, or I can spend that hour writing something that gets to 220,000 people or recording a video that gets to 50,000 people. And, and, you know, even if it gets to four, you know, forget the numbers. If you start to say, I want my life to be meaningful. I want part of my life to be fun and joy and, and carelessness and, and, you know, just being goofy and, and happy and, and okay. That, that's wonderful you, that you, we deserve that. But we're also here for a reason. And we deserve the, the glory, the glorified joy of just actually making a difference. Whether that difference is kissing your child or that difference is talking to your best friend or that difference is sitting and contemplating and figuring something out that you can tell your best friend about. And, and, and those little things have been removed from our modern life for the very simple reason that everyone is fighting for your attention because your attention is worth money. Everyone wants to distract you with their own product on their own billboard because that's worth money. And you have to ask yourself, am I really that silly? Am I really going to fall for all of them? Do, do I actually need any of this? What do I actually need? I, I, I told you I moved to Dubai, I rented the tiniest apartment I have ever in my life lived in. Okay? You're touching the walls right it. now. I totally love it. I totally, totally love it. You know what? Because somehow, even, I, even though I thought about this my whole life, I'm not immune to that, to those constant messages of this chair is what you need, that little thing, that whatever, you know. Now I have constraints. I basically say, mm, I wish I could have that chair. I don't have space for it. Do you, do you realize that? An audio medium, but I will describe for listeners that when I last spoke to, to Mo, he was in this glorious kind of Canadian barn with sort of beautiful decor and wonderful views. And now it's a chair against a plain white wall. Nothing <laughs> else going on. I love on. it. I absolutely adore. I mean, that was the, my favorite Airbnb in the world. Send mm -hmm. me a text message if you're, if you're ever in Montreal. I'll give oh, well. you the, the address to that place. It's an incredible, an incredible, incredible place. But hey, that's a vacation. Mm -hmm. And by the way, actually, I'm still struggling, Helen. It's incredible huh? because I am completely trying to be a minimalist this time. I think you're nailing I'm it. Buying I'm buying hundreds, hundreds of little things, 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 things. Our life is full of things between, you know, TV and, 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 and teaspoon. There yeah. are hundreds of them, <laughs> hundreds. And I compare that to, I, I, I hosted one of my favorite guests on Slow Mo was uh, Jimmy Nelson, the photographer who goes, in, you know, I don't call him a photographer. He's a, an amazing storyteller, goes to the furthest parts of the world. and talks about that African tribe that owns nothing, only their clothes. Okay. And then when you become a teenager and it's time to become, a, you know, to get into manhood or adulthood, they send you out in the desert, in the, in the forest without your clothes. Okay. And, and then basically tell you, figure life out. And that's so interesting as compared to our life mm -hmm. of things, things, mm -hmm. things, more, more and more and more and more. It's crazy, really. And again, it's about meaning, what do we want in our life. 
So I have, I have a final question. I'm aware I've kept you for a long time, but you talk so much and so beautifully about kind of love and the glory of connection. And, but then you also have this kind of nomadic life, the half monk. You speak incredibly with incredible warmth and generosity about your wife both before and after your divorce. So many of the people I spoke to for how to be sad would reflect that going through something is incredibly as painful as a divorce is such a sad time for many. And I wondered if you might be able to share your advice about how to hold on to something like the soul for happy formula while going through the end of a relationship or, or anything that we can, we can learn there. Look, I think, I think the number one thing to understand is unhappiness, violence, fighting never gets you anything. Okay. I've, I've lived 28 wonderful years an incredible gift that was my wife. Incredible woman in every possible way. Yeah, we, we argued, but she's incredible in so many ways. She gave me two wonderful kids. She gave me love. We grew together. We learned so many things together. It would be stupid, stupid to throw that away. Like, how can you, how can you forget that? How can you forget every part of every joy? Again, remember your brain wants to tell you the seven things that are wrong out of every 10. I remember the three. Okay? And the three are amazing. And I remember that fighting with her or having a, a painful divorce is so unfair. And she's given me herself for years. So unfair. Even if it's just, if she just gave me herself for a day, it's such a wonderful gift. You, you have to appreciate, you have to have the gratitude for that. And there is a point in life where love and relationships are not as romantic as love actually. Huh? So, so you, you end up eventually realizing that, yeah, sometimes things don't work, but they don't work in that one romantic setup format. They can work in so many other things because true love is unconditional. True love is, I, I, I love you, whatever the circumstances are. I love you, whatever you give me, whatever you take from me. There is that level of truly having the joy of not being loved, not being in a loving relationship, the Hollywood view, but being able to love. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you can actually sit in front of a butterfly and say, oh my God, what is that amazing feeling I have in me? I adore that little creature. Okay? I don't know if you can have that to a snake. Because by the way, a snake is a wonderful, majestic creature in every little way. And it absolutely has no interest in harming you. By the way, you were conditioned unless you harm it mm -hmm. most of the time. And, and, and so the idea is, can you actually find it in you to realize that you as a human are a thinking machine, but that's the least of your skills. The highest of your skills is you're a loving machine. You're the only thing out there that's actually capable of finding that incredibly irrational emotion that has no equation. It's the only emotion, by the way. In my second book, I wrote a chapter that was called The Equations of Emotions. The only one that doesn't have an equation that describes it because it's completely irrational is love. Can you, are you capable to rise above your physical disgusting form with mucus and sweat and all of that to rise above your mind, that restrictive control freak to rise about all of that and get into your divine form of love and then see that joy, see the joy that you feel, not because you're being loved, but because you're capable of loving. And do you think that, that the non-platonic love is also necessary for happiness. Non-platonic, like romantic love? Yeah, but I or almost the word romance or... seems wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the unrequited love that you have 
or the the unconditional love that you have for your children, for example, the other love that when people fall in love, you know, that I don't want to say romantic because that goes back to the, the rom-coms and the, the love actually love, but is that an important piece of the happiness jigsaw, do you think? Totally. So remember, my, my entire theory says you're only capable of being happy when your fa- basic needs are met. So, so happiness for us, if you watch any child, you have to feed them, you have to keep them safe, you have, you have to give them a bit of love, a bit of warmth, and so on and so forth, for them to be able to not require anything further from life, but feel at their default setting, happy. Mm-hmm. Okay, Our default state is happy when our basic needs are met. Part of those basic needs are feeling loved, giving love, being touched, having sex, you know, eating good food, eating healthy food, eating chocolate. You know, all of those things are really the spices that make you feel alive. One of it is to have that incredible rush of, look, oh my God, look at her. You know, she's so amazing. She's driving me crazy. I want to kiss her. I want to hug her. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's part of life. But call that love? No. Don't call that love. You can call that intimacy. You can call that desire. You can call it sensuality. You can call it attraction. You can call it what you want. But call it love. You're stepping over the line. Interesting. Love is that ability to completely connect with another being regardless of anything, regardless of who they are, what their habits are, you know, if, if they benefit you or harm you, that is love. Love is to say, you know what? I may never see my son again, ever in that form, ever. But I feel that love. Okay. You know what? My daughter is halfway around the world. She can give me nothing today. I still feel that love. And I don't care, by the way, she loves me. I understand that. But I don't care if she does or not. I mm. still feel that yeah. love. Can we find that in us? Because in all honesty, that's the most selfish thing you can ever do, is to sit there and pour love on everything around you. It's so joyful. And I wonder why people don't do that. It's such a joyful feeling. Yes, there is a sort of freedom, isn't, isn't there? If you're not waiting for anything back. It's very liberating to just, I just love you. So there you go. Now you have that. Yeah. 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 There you go. And, and, and yeah. you can do whatever you want. It's not going to upset me because yeah. I just love you. Okay, yeah. yeah. It might upset me, but I still love you. Yeah. Oh, this, it, I could talk to you for hours, but I mustn't. I, I normally end by asking what you would tell your 21-year-old self about being oh, oh. sad and how to cope with what life throws at us. So you've talked about lots of things already, but is there anything that springs to mind that you think? Oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. You know, I was a serious video gamer my whole life. I became a legendary video gamer at the end of my life. When Ali left our life, I started to honor him by doing all of the things that he did. Okay. And so I, I normally was playing on difficult in most of my video games. He was legendary. Now I'm legendary. Okay. And if I go back to my 21 year old, I would simply tell him that life is a video game. It's absolutely in every possible way life is a video game. Life is supposed to be hard like a video game is supposed to be hard. Okay. Life has no end to it like a video game has no end to it. Okay. Life is all about this moment. Because by the way, when I used to play with Ali, I would go to the run to the end of the game and Ali would put his controller down and go like, Papa, why? Why are you running there? And I'm like, Ali, the end of the game is there. And he would go like, no, Papa, that's stupid. We're playing. We're playing. Why do you want to end the game? We're playing. We go to the places where there is explosion and smoke, where we can develop and learn and become better gamers, where we can have fun. Life, interestingly, has no purpose. 
again, a Western concept, that we think that there is a point in the future, a target, that we will strive to for the rest of our life and will feel upset until we get to it. And then when we get to it, we'll hold it and then feel upset again because we have no target anymore. And, and the truth is the purpose of life is this moment. That's the entire purpose. The entire purpose is you and I are here. I can put my whole self into this, enjoy it fully, do the best out of it. They're not, you know, uh, contradictory. I can enjoy something fully and make it amazing at the same time. And that's a game. That's a game. Life is to be played, is to be enjoyed, including the tough times. It's, you know, when a, when a video gamer gets a difficult part of the game, they don't put the controller down and call the game designer and say, what's wrong with you? They engage. They go like, oh my God, it's tough. Let me try again. Let me try to do this the way it is. And so what would I say? Live, play, enjoy it. Okay. Enjoy it with the tough parts. Enjoy it when they lock you down. Enjoy it when they let you out. Okay. That's the game. I love that. Thank you so much, Mo. It's such a joy to speak to you. And I hope that uh, we get to speak again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.